Well, the question this morning is simply, are you willing? And we can put that into just about anything. Are you willing to be the best employee? Are you willing to be the best spouse? Are you willing to be the best parent? And there's, there's something about that question that are we willing to do what it takes to be the best at something? Obviously, I love sports, and sports are an easy life illustration, right? And, and thinking about track and field, I was never great at track and field other than junior high. I had a little glory, but uh, that was it. But uh, when you watch track and field, especially the Olympics, it's pretty fun because these people, they spend their lives doing one thing, right? running a 100-meter sprint, and they, they do everything they can to train for that to be the best they can. They're, they're willing to go to these extremes for just this 100-meter sprint, right? And then there's all kinds of events. Uh, but what, what caught my attention this week was the, the decathlon. The, the decathlon, they have two days, and they do 10 events in two days. Very different from any other track and field thing because they're doing everything. I, I looked it up. 100-meter sprint, they do a long jump, they do the shot put, they do the high jump, they do the 400, they do the 110-meter hurdles, they do the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, and the mile. I mean, think about that. They're doing all 10 events in two days. Think of all the different things they have to learn, because every one of those events, they have to do specific movements and all of that. And so you think about the dedication to do that, right? Are you willing to go through all that to be an Olympic champion? Well, it reminded me of a video I watched when I was in college that was incredibly inspiring, and I want to share that video with you right now, this inspiring video about the John Belushi is on his way to a gold medal in the decathlon. They're setting the bar at seven feet. Here's his approach. He's won the gold. Now he's going for the world's record. He's making his move. They're in the final turn. He's kicking it in. He's got it. A spectacular time. A new world's record. Unbelievable. What a day for John Belushi. I logged a lot of miles training for that day, and I downed a lot of donuts. Little chocolate donuts. They taste good. And they've got the sugar I need to get me going in the morning. That's why little chalka donuts have been on my training table since I was a kid. Little chocolate donuts, the donuts of champions. There you go. Little chocolate donuts make the difference. Are you willing to eat that many little chocolate donuts? I, just so you know, that was a joke. That wasn't really inspiring. Uh, but I do remember it being really funny the first time I watched it because obviously John Belushi was not willing to do what it took to be a decathlete, but, uh, but it made for a funny joke, right? Because those guys actually do put a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, and you watch us, and most of us, in all honesty in life, we tend to be a little bit more like John Belushi. We'd rather have the chocolate donuts. Maybe not smoke the cigarette while you're eating the chocolate donuts, but, <laughs> but you know. It, it, we tend to, to go, yeah, I'm willing to a point, right? Uh, but the question today, seriously, is are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to actually follow Jesus the way he calls us to follow him? And, and when you go to Matthew chapter 4, we find that Jesus is calling his first disciples. And I want to read this to you. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. It says, 
One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. In both these situations, there doesn't seem much thought put into it. Jesus calls them to leave everything and follow him. And, and what we need to know here is they didn't just follow him for that day. They followed him for the next three years and then the rest of their lives. They left who they were. They left, they were fishermen. They left being a fisherman. They left their father. They left their families to follow Jesus. And if you define being a follower, it is one that follows the opinions or teachings of another or one that imitates another. So if you're a follower of Jesus, be one that follows the opinions or teachings of Jesus that imitates Jesus. That's what being a follower of Jesus is. Now, being a follower of Jesus today, if I'm completely honest, doesn't seem to be quite as difficult as it was for the disciples actually following Jesus. Because, man, they seem to have left everything, right? Following Jesus is actually leaving the old you. It requires leaving the safety in the comfort of your current life and stepping out of that. It seems to be when you look back at Scripture that, man, following Jesus was not an easy thing. In fact, it was a difficult decision. And I guess for me, I was thinking this week of all the decisions I've made in my life. Some of them are pretty easy. Uh, others, like when we decided to move from the safety of Kansas, where all our family lived and, and everything we knew and we moved to California with all the fruit bats, right? And that, I'm just kidding. That's what they thought in Kansas, but we love California. But it was a huge decision for us, and we knew that it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't the easy thing to do. It was, it was difficult. We also knew that it would change our lives. It would change the dynamics of our lives for forever. And, and so, how many times have you faced a decision that you knew was the right thing to do, but you also knew would change, rearrange your life? That makes it difficult. We're going to look at Luke chapter 14. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter. Jesus is invited. At the very beginning of Luke chapter 14, Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee. Now, most likely, he was invited because they wanted to make sure he knew that he was wrong. Uh, that's kind of the way the Pharisees were. But they invited, he invited Jesus into his home, and other Pharisees were there, other religious leaders were there. And, and the first thing that happens is, is Jesus heals a man. And, and after Jesus heals the man, these Pharisees and, and religious leaders are, are upset because it was on the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath, even if it's healing a sick man. Obviously, we disagree with that because Jesus was healing somebody. But here are these people, they're watching, they're, they're studying Jesus, looking for a flaw. And then as they're sitting there, Jesus is looking around the table, 
And he begins to notice that all these Pharisees, all these religious people, are all trying to get to the places of power. They're trying to sit in the right seats, be, be next to the, the right political people. And as he's watching all this, he basically tells them, you guys need to not worry about being in the right places politically. In, in fact, you shouldn't even be inviting all the rich to come, all the important to come. Why aren't you inviting the homeless, the, the poor, the needy? And, and, and so Jesus is not making a lot of friends at this dinner at this point. They view themselves as religious, as the real religious people. And so then Jesus blows that up with a story about the party of a king. And, and this king throws a giant party with a giant meal and Jesus tells this story. And he says, the, the king sent out his servant to invite all these people to come to the meal. The servants go out and they, they obviously, they go to the important people in town. They begin to invite people to come to the party. And, and as they're inviting all these different people, they all have excuses. Uh, this is what it says in Luke 14, beginning verse 18. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. And, and so the servants come back and they're disgusted. They're like, King, we... we we invited all these people, but no one can come. And the king then says, no, 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 invite everybody. Don't just invite them. Find, find the poor, find the lame, find anybody and invite them. And so the servants went back out. And as they started to invite these people, the people started to come. And they started to come to the king's party. And, and even after a lot of them came, the king sent the servant back out said, man, everybody, go and shout it from the mountaintops. Tell them to come. He wanted his house to be full. In this story, you see these, these people that, well, they're wealthy. If, if you have five oxen, you're wealthy. If you just bought some land, you're wealthy. And, and so this picture here is he's talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, and they're saying, you're missing you think that you are religious, yet you're not even willing to follow me. And now, they weren't about to follow Jesus because they were too busy. Basically, the first people that were invited, what was their excuse? We don't have time. That doesn't fit into our plans. We don't have time to squeeze that in. The people that came said, just like the disciples, I'm coming. I got invited. I will make time for the party. And so when you look back at the, the disciples, just the first four, Peter and Andrew and James and John that we just talked about, listen to what they did. They left their nets at once and followed him. They immediately, James and John, followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. They responded immediately. They rearranged their lives to follow Jesus. You see, what Jesus asked his disciples to do was to leave their world and join his world. <laughs> so often today, we 
ask Jesus to join our world. That we ask him to come follow us, be part of our lives. Yet Jesus in the Bible said, no, 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 you leave this world and you follow me. Just bold, it's risky, right? I think about those disciples. It didn't even seem like they went home and asked their wives. <laughs> they didn't go home, go home and ask mom and dad, hey, this guy said this, should, should I do it? They just did it. These guys were joining the Jesus party, kind of like the king's party. And if you're a follower of Jesus, remember, it's one that follows the opinions and teachings of Jesus. You imitate Jesus. Now, if we're honest with our most of us are willing to follow Jesus. We come to church probably because we all want to be Jesus followers. And it's easy to talk about. It's easy to think about. It's easy to listen to a sermon and go, yes, I want to be a Jesus follower. But I've done this many times, even before I was a pastor. And even as a pastor, I, I preach a message and I think, man, I need to hear that. <laughs> Not just you, but I need this. And then you talk about it, and then you start talking, and you go out in the patio, and, and you love on each other, which is good, and then you go to lunch. <clears throat> and by evening time, you're like, <clears throat> wow, that was a really good message Pastor Chris preached. <clears throat> I'm just saying that, so good message. <clears throat> it's a really good message, but yeah, maybe. Maybe next week I'll start it. You know, it's, there's a lot to it, but as time goes by, it takes over, our life takes over, and we just kind of stay the same. Most of us want to do the right things, but putting it into action can be difficult because putting it into action can, can be life-altering. It can take us out of our comfort zone. It's interesting, thinking about something doesn't change our lives. Thinking about it in our minds doesn't change it physically. Actually doing something changes our lives. If we want to get in shape, having a Big Mac and French fries and thinking about it doesn't get you in shape. You actually have to go to the gym. If you want to have a better marriage, reading a book doesn't save your marriage. You actually have to start buying her flowers holding her hand and doing the things that make marriage better. If you want a different job, just thinking about it doesn't change it. You've got to take your resume and start passing it out. You've got to start doing. Here's what Dale Carnegie said. Inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit home and think about it. Go out and get busy. I feel like that's exactly what Jesus asked his disciples to do. <laughs> Don't just think about it. Do it. There's a thing, I, I've thought this for a long time. I, I've, I've used it in my own life. What I think can change who I am. How I think about myself can change who I am. It's kind of positive thinking, right? Because I've been... A, in a bad place in my life where I think negative thoughts about myself, I don't like myself, and, and, and I know that that is not healthy for me. So you start thinking good things, right? And then you start to believe those things. But, but the truth is, I just read it this week, is uh, positive thinking is good, but positive thinking doesn't change us. <laughs> 
See, positive thinking alone doesn't, what you do changes you. We are what we do. And I'm not my thoughts. I am what I do. (laughs) And, And so we go back to the original question. What are we willing to do? But what are we willing to do to be followers of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus the way the Bible defines being a follower of Jesus? And so in chapter 14 of Luke, we continue, and Jesus now gives a little bit of a warning, but he gives us a pretty strong warning about what we're willing to do. And here's what he says. In verse 25, he says, A crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciples. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus obviously has left the dinner with the Pharisees, and he's out, and this large crowd's following him. And the first thing Jesus does is he turns basically gives them this stern warning. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else. Well, we need to put that into, compar- into relative terms here because obviously Jesus doesn't want to hate anybody. We don't hate. He says, if you want to follow me, I have to be the most important thing. Everyone else has to, has to be rearranged because I am going to be the center of your life. And so he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you need to stop and think about what you're willing to do. And then he says, then you must pick up your cross and follow me. Now, a cross to us is artwork on the wall now. We, we know it's this beautiful thing. We know Jesus died on it, and that's why we have it as a symbol in the church. But if you really pick that thing up and start carrying it around it, it's a symbol of an instrument of torture. That's not a nice thing. I and mean, that's not something you really want carrying around. But what Jesus was telling the early disciples is, listen, if you're going to actually follow me, you might have to die for me. Your life will never be the same. And there's going to be more burden in following me than just, ah, oh, what a great life. He was telling them it's not easy to follow me. And so Jesus obviously didn't go to, to the right salesmanship classes because you don't just tell people when they're following you, hey, you don't want to follow me. It's going to be way too hard. That doesn't work, right? But it seemed to work because the crowds kept following him. And people kept following him because there was something about him. And he continues with his story, this warning, and he says, but don't begin until you count the cost. In other words, Think about what you're willing to do. For who begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and can't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 marching against him. And if he can't, he'll send out a delegation to discuss terms of peace with the enemy. And it's still, well, it's still far away. 
So if you cannot become my disciple without giving, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. That's a big deal, right? You can't be my disciple without giving up everything you own. Now, it doesn't mean we actually give it up, that it's gone. I mean, in some situations, yes, we get rid of things, whatever. But the bottom line is he's saying, you can't be my disciple unless I am number one. You have to follow me. I don't follow you. So giving up everything, you remember Paul said that everything he'd wanted when he was a Pharisee, when he was this religious leader, now he considered garbage. For what? To know Christ. To know Christ was everything to him. He was willing to, to give up his entire life that he had fought for to know Christ, to follow Jesus. And so again, the question is, are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to take the, not invite him into our lives, but us into his life. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet that maybe, if you've gone to church long enough, you've heard of Elijah. He was a big deal. He was a big prophet of, the, of, of Israel, and God used him to do all kinds of great things. And as Elijah was coming to the end of his ministry, God directed him to a man named Elisha. And I always wish that they would have changed their name so they weren't so close. So Bob, okay? Elijah and then Bob was the next one. But instead, it's Elijah and it's Elisha. So you have to, you have to keep those separated. But Elijah was the prophet. Everyone knew him. And becoming a prophet of Israel was not something people wanted to do because they were usually hated. Uh, the, the kings usually hated them. Why? Because they had to take what God told them and tell the people and, and the kings didn't like them. The people usually didn't like them. So it wasn't a great thing. But what a calling, right? And so Elijah's coming to the end of his ministry and God says, I want you to go to Elisha and I want you to tell him that he is going to be the next prophet. And so he goes and in that day, if you were passing on your, your legacy or your profession or to the next person, you would take your cloak, your coat, and you would go up to that person and you would lay it over their shoulders. And that was a sign that you're next in line. You're going to take over for me. And so here comes Elijah, and he finds Elisha at his home farm. And he's there, he's plowing with some oxen in his plow, and Elijah comes down into the meadow where he's plowing, and he puts the cloak over his shoulders, and he walks off. Elisha stops what he's doing, and he runs after Elijah, and he catches Elijah. And this is what Elijah says to Elisha, the one taking over. Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. I love that terminology, what I've done to you. <laughs> it's like taking over as a pastor, right? I think Dwayne said that. Look what I did to you. No. But here he's, he's saying, look what I've done. You need to take this serious. And so Elisha goes back to the farm, goes back to his plow, goes back to his oxen. And now we know that Elijah was a, or Elisha was very wealthy. He was from money. You don't have 12 teams of oxen back then unless you're a huge farming operation. They all have plows. He's got servants working for him. He has all of this to take over. And you just stop and think about it. It's a little bit like, like the first disciples. They were fishermen, right? 
their family. They were all fishermen. And when they walked away from that, they were walking away from their family, from their inheritance, from who they were to follow Jesus. And so now we have Elisha who has all this money. And just by comparison, if Elisha was alive today, he'd have a mansion down on the water with the 10-car garage, and it'd be full of fancy sports cars and antique cars. And, and that's, that's what Elisha was coming from, that kind of money, that kind of inheritance. So here Elijah says, go back and think about what I just did to you because you're going to have to give all this up. So Elisha goes back and he takes the oxen and he kills all 12 teams of oxen and they butcher them and they cook them and he invites the whole town to come to a party and he takes all the plows and he piles them into a big pile and lights them on fire in a big bonfire and they have a party right there. Do you realize what he just did? He took all the fancy sports cars and all the antique cars and he just lit them all on fire and said, this is not me anymore. I no longer have a farm. I'm going to go follow him. Look what Elisha was willing to do to be and do what God called him to do. And the question is, are we willing? That was the end of Elisha the farmer and Elisha became Elisha, the prophet of God. Remember, I'm not my thoughts. I am what I do. Our actions define us. Now, I believe most of us, we are willing to follow Jesus. That's why we're here. We want to follow Jesus, but so often it's under the right circumstances. It's when it's convenient. It's when I have time to squeeze them in. As long as everything is comfortable, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. (laughs) You know, Peter and the other disciples, they followed Jesus. They left their lives. They followed him. For three years, they followed Jesus. And do you know the first time they were really tested, they failed. The night that Jesus was arrested, they were following him. They're right there. They're with him. They're following him. Jesus gets arrested, and he's taken off to be, to be executed. And what do they do? They ran. <laughs> they, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you even if you die. Well, maybe not. <laughs> now, I don't blame them. I mean, what a scary situation. But they all took off. They left. They stopped following him in that moment. Now, we know they all came back, other than Judas, they all came back around. But in that first moment, when all of a sudden they were tested, it was, oh man, this is too far, Jesus. It was all good when you were going to be a king. It was all good when the big crowds were following you. But now, this isn't so nice. (laughs) And so, what are we willing to do? See, the problem for us comes when it requires us leaving our safety, leaving our comfort, sometimes leaving our current situation, or or even when it cuts into our time. If you go back to Luke chapter 14, and the, the king throws the party. In that party, if you remember, the servants went out and they invited a whole bunch of people to come, formally invite them to come, and they didn't come. They all had an excuse, right? They had land to buy. They had cattle to buy. They had all these things that they had to do. 
And I was just wondering this week if maybe those people, you know, they felt bad. The king invited them to a party. I, I just wonder if maybe their response could have been, you know, I don't have time to come to his party, but next week I'm having a party, and I'd love to have you come to my party because I'm already planning a party. You're welcome to come to mine. I just don't have time for you. Isn't that an interesting thought when you stop, think about, yeah, I, I don't have time for Jesus to call me into his world, but Jesus, come on into my world. You, you can come and hang out with me and see what I do during the day. You see, it's called the in gospel. So often in the world we live in, we say, Jesus, come join me. I'm a Jesus follower. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you come follow me. I might take you places where it's a little uncomfortable at times. The question again is, are we willing to follow Jesus, to join the Jesus party? Are we willing to carry our cross? <laughs> now, carrying our cross in today's world doesn't look like it did in Jesus' world. But are we willing to have a burden? Are we willing to give up time? Are we willing to rearrange our own world? Or are we willing to give up everything else? <laughs> and again, it doesn't mean we actually have to sell everything. But are we willing to take Jesus and put him in the center of our lives? Because when we put him in the center of our lives, guess what? It rearranges everything else in our lives. It's pretty easy to put him on the outside. We can keep everything in order. But when we take him and set him in the center of our lives, it rearranges our lives. Back in the 1500s, there was a guy named Nicholas Copernicus. He was a really smart guy that figured out that the earth was not the center of the universe. Now, up until that point, all scientists, everyone believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And to be completely honest... That makes sense, right? We're here on the earth looking out. We would think we're the center of it, right? Uh, the, the, the sun and all the planets are rotating around the earth. Nicholas Copernicus, obviously a little smarter than myself, did a bunch of math problems, but not on a computer. He's probably writing it. <laughs> figured out that we are not the center of the universe. In fact, the sun is the center of the universe, and the earth, as well as all the planets, and everything is rotating around the sun. And so he comes out with a book explaining why we are not the center of the universe. The sun is, and do you know what the church did? They called him a heretic. <laughs> they banned his book from reading. Why? Because we're the center of the universe, right? And don't you tell me that we're not the center of the universe because that messes up everything. But here he comes along and he has enough guts to say, no, actually, the sun is the center of the universe. And we're just part of that universe. And are we willing in our world to quit being the center of the world? To quit being the center of our universe? And let Jesus be the center of our universe. Are we willing to go that far and let him rearrange our lives? Paul's going to come up and he's going he's to sing. Because I just feel like this morning, I feel like we need to 
have a time that we can just be with God. Maybe you need to say, you know what, I, I've said I was a Jesus follower, but I, I need to make him the center of my life. Or maybe you've never even said that. Maybe today you go in, I want to follow Jesus. But this is between you and him. You, you can sit right where you're at. You can kneel where you're at. You can kneel at these altars. It's whatever you feel comfortable doing or not feel comfortable doing. But it's about Jesus being the center of your life. Dear Heavenly Father, meet us right where we are. Pull us out of our comfort. Pull us out of our safety. And give us the courage to follow you. Dear Heavenly Father, I am willing to follow you. My prayer is this morning that we'd be a church that you are the center of, that we would be people that you are the center of our lives, and that we are just willing to follow you. We're willing to be who you call us to be. We're willing to do what you tell us to do. That's our prayer. We love you. We just pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. And you are dismissed.